All right, hi everybody. Welcome. We're in the green room, and we're going to share with you like what everyone's doing. Um, we've got people. We got some awesome guests, like we do every week. And I'm going to go in reverse order. We're going to go with Larry. Quick intros about where you are and what you're talking about, and then we're going to go to Ali, and we're going to go to Brian, and then we'll have the whole team, and then of course um, Ray Wong and uh, one of the co-hosts and co-founders of Disrupt TV, with our awesome producer, depending on where you're looking at, L on the other end, and of course co-founder and co-host Bala. So. All right, so Larry, where are you calling in from? What are you talking about today? Other than the beach. Uh, I'm from Yardley, Pennsylvania. Uh, even though my TV behind me, which doubles as a green screen, looks like Block Island, Rhode Island. But, you know, um, what am I talking today? I don't know, but I go last, so we'll figure it out in about 40 minutes. All right, we'll figure it out from there. That's awesome. Allie. Hi, I'm Allie Cudby. I'm here from Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm going to be talking about the awesome world of customer retention today. Very, very well needed. And Brian, where's home and what are you talking about here? Home is San Francisco Bay Area, where we are fighting some, some pretty gnarly fires at the moment, but, but getting through it. Uh, and I'm here to speak to today about some of the research McKinsey Company has been uh, conducting around the global pandemic. Yeah, I know you've got some great stuff. I've been subscribing to the newsletters and we're about to kick off. So let's do the honors. Here we go, Al. All right, three, two, one. Hello and uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us on uh, Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Akshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, a regular contributor to ZDNet, Harvard Business Review, and Television Business and Technology News. I've been watching him on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, all in the past week. Uh, he's a global sought-after speaker and one of the most influential futurists, in my humble opinion, on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar. And if you haven't followed him on Twitter, he is the number one person to follow for CEOs, CMOs, and CIOs about what's happening around leadership, inspiration, and what's going on next in technology. So, and Bala is also an author himself. You can see him on business TV. And of course, a keynote speaker. I keep hearing about Vala just spoke here. Vala just spoke there. And of course, in the last CIO meeting in some Boston, I believe, it's some CIO council. So um, thanks for being on the show, everyone, and watching. But more importantly, it's about our guests. Who do we have first today, Vala? You know, what I love speaking about is awesome research. And when I talk about awesome research, I often go to McKinsey. So our first guest today is Brian Gregg. Uh, he's a senior partner at McKinsey and co-leader of North America Marketing and Sales Practice. Brian serves clients in consumer-facing industries with deep experience in e-commerce, retail, consumer technology, media, and consumer packaged goods. Brian has fundamental expertise in multitude of marketing and sales discipline, including digital marketing, CRM and loyalty, customer experience, agile operating models, omni-channel strategy, and consumer-centric innovation. We're going to talk hopefully about all of that or some of that today. You can follow all the marketing and sales research uh, from McKinsey on Twitter at McKinsey, M-C-K-I-N-S-E-Y. Welcome, Brian, to Disrupt TV. Thanks for having me, Ray and Vala. Great to be with you. You know, you guys have been doing some deep research, right? This is some of the most extensive consumer research I've seen. It's 50 plus countries. You've got, you know, prospective studies going on about consumer behavior and what's happening. And I want you to share, like, help people understand the extensiveness of that research and really about some of the headwinds and some of the maybe interesting trends that are happening uh, as a way to kind of kick off because there's some really cool stuff and i keep getting these newsletters every day and i'm like wow where's this content coming from and i think i know where now but well, hey, I, I appreciate the, the the question right it has been um it's been a crazy time for all of us i'm sure and and here at mckinsey the amount of ip that's been developed in the last 90 days is probably mm -hmm. superseded what we did in the three years before then. So it, it has been a prolific time to say the least. Uh, but as you mentioned, we, we have been doing research across 51 countries, uh, started really in the early days of the, of the pandemic. And what, what we really sought to, to seek to understand is how is what's happening in our world today changing the way consumers think, behave, and their overall sentiment uh, towards the economy? And maybe before answering your question on some of the, the headwinds and the headlines, uh, it's probably important just to first acknowledge how important and 
how much of a humanitarian crisis this pandemic is really represents the threats to lives and livelihoods. That's nothing to be understated and, and is clearly first and foremost in the minds of all of the researchers at McKinsey. Um, but as we've conducted this research, what we tried to do is essentially take a weekly pulse, really since, since the pandemic began, to understand how consumers are, are changing their mindsets and behaviors around commerce and around the way they, they shop. And, and just a couple, to answer your questions, a couple things we're seeing. I, I think first and probably not too surprising, the epic amount of change we're seeing is at a scale and pace that, that really has never been seen before. I mean, the, the scale and pace of this thing is insane. So just to give you an example, in the last 90 days, we jumped 10 years in terms of the in terms of digital penetration that consumers have behaved in, meaning the number of hours spent online, the amount of transactions uh, online, literally 10 years in three months. So that, that wow. kind of human behavior, you know, you know, that's that's not something that statistically you typically see. And it's really the global pandemic has set off a whole chain reaction uh, of shocks. Really, and so you asked about headwinds. Uh, look, I mean, right now, our in our research, we're finding that forty percent of Americans are reporting spending less and planning, intending to cut back on spending, looking forward, uh, particularly on non-essential items. Uh, wow, that's a, that's a big number, right? Um, secondly, we're seeing this is one of our more surprising findings: uh, a, a complete shock to loyalty. And what I mean by that is, upwards of seventy-five percent of consumers across countries reporting changing a brand, a retailer, a website that they usually shop for. So th this amount of change and switching and new behaviors emerging is, is like no other period we've seen before. You and know, so we this were seeing is that very the, challenging time. You no, know, we're seeing that in the stock market too, right? The companies who could deliver were actually the ones being rewarded in post-pandemic response. If you could deliver, we, you were being rewarded. If you were completely out of the game on a digital channel, you're dead. Right, you don't even get the play. So, totally right. but is it exacerbating winner-takes-all markets here? Well, we're. I mean, <laughs> what we, what we know for sure at this point is the amount of market share up for grabs has never been seen at, at this level and in this short of a window. Right, when you have seventy-five percent of consumers switching, I mean, just to bring that story to life, think of the think of the grocery sector. I mean, this is a, a tried and true loyal sector where your grocery store that you've gone to for years around the corner or three mile radius, that's your grocery store. That's what you, you're tried and true. We see in our research, 20% of Americans reporting changing their grocery store uh, over the last 90 days. It's unheard of. And so in this moment of consumer switching and new routines being cemented, yeah, there's a whole new leaderboard truly being rewritten as we speak. And so well, on one hand, for some brands who were the, the market share leaders, there's a real concern about how do I make sure to hold on to my base? But as you said, and as we've seen in the stock market, the, those who are able to win the consumer at the digital first screen touch point, they're able to grab market share that was never ever available in the past. Right, right, right. And you know, when I, when I think about um, discretionary spend pre-COVID, essential, non-essential, the only barrier you had was relevance, you know, was, was the brand, the product, the service relevant to you, and if it was, you spent. Post-COVID, you have two additional barriers. You have safety and accessibility. There are certain organizations, you know, movie theaters, there's no access. So regardless of safety and, and then others, uh, and, and then, you know, safety in terms of being able to, you know, order online, uh, pick curbside or contactless payments. And most of the restaurants that I've been to in the last several weeks, uh, there's no menu. You, you scan the barcode, the menu shows up on your phone, and that's how you order. And then you think about why did we hand out dirty plastic and paper menus to begin with? Well, wiped a couple of times. <laughs> it's fine. You know? Totally clean. <laughs> so, so yeah. So the combination of relevance and safety and accessibility as three barriers in terms of discretionary spend. And in your report, we had really five dimensions. You talked about shift of value and essentials. You talked about flight to digital and omni-channel, which we're going to talk about some more with our uh, last guest, shock to loyalty, which you mentioned, health and caring economy, and then home body economy. And I want to talk, talk or learn a little bit more about the, the flight to digital and omni-channel. You said in the report, most categories, you need to find categories with food, grocery, apparel, household, entertainment services, a bunch of categories. All have seen, uh, or majority have seen, more than 10% growth in their online customer base during the pandemic. But what's interesting is many of the consumers say they plan to continue to shop online even after the brick and mortar stores are reopened safely. 
So this behavior, this 10-year acceleration that we've seen in the last three weeks or three months or five months, is a permanent view into what the next normal is going to look like. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, Bala, I mean, you you hit it on the head, right? We got a lot of questions in the last couple of months. Is this a hiccup? Is this a blip on the radar? Is this going to stick? And the, the answer is emerging. It, it is sticking, right? You, 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 hit, you said exactly right. We're seeing 10 to 15% of consumers sticking with their new, either the new brand, the new, the new uh, website, the new retailer that they're choosing. We're seeing the amount of digital interaction. Keep in mind, this, this pandemic has brought a whole new set of cohorts of adults, uh, of Americans, of other countries yeah. who, who didn't always try digital. That wasn't their thing. Right. They've had no choice now, and they're sticking with it. Right. For all the reasons you described, it's safer, it's contactless, there's high hygiene. And as long as I can get it fast enough, this is a this is a better routine. So it's getting cemented. So that behavior, it, the answer is emerging. It, it is really looking like this behavior will stick. This is the next normal that we're talking about. And companies who are able to quickly move to this new normal are the ones who are going to come out of this stronger versus those who aren't able to adjust. Is, is this just like a business blind spot that all companies or most companies had in that we didn't value the power of decentralization? Uh, you know, there was a forcing function that said we had to work from home and engage with brands in a pure decentralized, pure digital construct since March in the U.S. And, it, 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 and the, I just think about the companies that are struggling are the ones that really you have you focused on bringing people to you and there was really no other option to engage and so it's like really ignoring decentralization as a as a superpower and and now it's become even more relevant well you know i mean it's inertia is a powerful thing bala right and and what you had i think there wasn't a single company on the planet who didn't realize digital was going to be more and more important but when you build an entire business model on the basis of a physical footprint or right. to your point of, of the, the, the motion of bringing customers to you, it's really hard to invent the next the next horizon. And so what this moment has done, if nothing else, has ripped the Band-Aid off completely. I mean, this is truly the grandest human experiment ever in terms of a true clean sheet, a piece of paper put in front of companies and saying, OK, rebuild your business. Digital is first. The mobile phone is first. And how do you actually build the business model off that? Not easy to do, but this is what companies are forcing are forced to do at this point. True. You know, and, and with the shift that's actually going on, right? We're actually thinking that um, is it permanent? Is it going to continue? Do we change this? You know, one of the things that we've actually discovered too is density as a business model is dead, right? <laughs> density, all those models, revenue per square feet, right? You know, how many turns can you make in a restaurant, right? Those metrics are completely thrown out the door, um, but. Are we truly in a digital model? Is it gonna last? Like, let's say we find a vaccine, are we just gonna throw all that out again? Or do you think this is here to stay? All indicators, Ray, so far as this is likely to stick. And uh, that's not just a thing to be said about one individual market. As we look at, obviously, this has been a shared global experience across, across many countries, unfortunately. But different countries are in different stages of the pandemic, as we know. And so being able to study each of those uh, of those markets has been helpful to us in our research to see as the ebbs and the flows happen of the virus, what you find is, while yes, there is uh, a metering of how consumers spend their time and how much physical interaction and density, to use your words, they're willing to, to take, the digital is is not going away. It's it's sticking. And that's, that's a known thing. And so companies are going to have to rebuild their business around it. Uh, and, and that that takes a that takes a, a full on uh, battle plan. And I will say I will say if there's one regret I'm hearing from executives who have now sort of had a chance to really digest all this is, wow, I wish I would have spent more time on reimagining this next normal versus having everybody's head 150 percent in managing the day to day grind of the crisis. So yeah. Operating at those multiple speeds, those multiple horizons, not easy to do but something we're encouraging our clients and our executives to really think through. Sure. So they're sure. doubling down on digital. Yeah, absolutely. Tripling down, I hope. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> tripling down. Tripling and down. I, and I don't want to yeah. use the right word, right? It's not everything will be done only in a digital environment, but yeah. digital first, digital led, absolutely. The yeah. idea of how does physical enable that, the idea of curbside, pick, pick up in store, reserve online, pick, those things are still going to happen. And there are things that human beings as anthropology would tell us 
We need to touch and feel. We need to talk. We need to see. Those things won't completely disappear, but it will be started from a digital spot. Yeah, yeah. And, and you started the, uh, our conversation talking about the shock to loyalty, which was uh, illustrated in your research. You know, I, I, I tend to localize it. So, for example, my company announced that uh, none of our employees need to come to offices for the next year. So August 2021. So we have a year of working from home, your choice, no matter where you are, even if the offices are open safely in other geographic locations, the choice of working from home or office is up to you for the next year. Uh, and then when I think of loyalty from like, I remember walking into a restaurant and I didn't see all the employees wearing a mask, so I walked out. So uh, to me, I made a very quick decision and it's my, one of my favorite restaurants and I love the food, but listen, if you're not mindful of what's going on around us, I'm gonna go somewhere else and maybe eat something less delicious, but I'm worried about my safety. So talk to us about the shock to loyalty. What's driving it? And give advice to business leaders. Like, you know, what do you need to do to earn the trust uh, of your customers in this next normal? Yeah, it's, it's as I said, the shock to loyalty has really been one of the biggest surprises of all of this. Three drivers of that from what we see, just to answer your question. The first really is just availability. I mean, let, let's face it, the first couple months of this pandemic, it was just a question, can I even get the products I need? Right. Uh, there, in some cases, there were over three, four months ship times to get something. So number one is availability, and that has changed where people have spent their dollar, right, based on availability. I think second driver is really this redefinition of convenience. I mean, you, you've all sort of touched on it, but the convenience is no longer where can I wait in, in line in my favorite grocery store. Convenience now is in a socially distanced, ideally contactless world. How do I get the product I need as fast as possible? And that's changed the game. And then the final one, which we haven't spent as much time on in, in our conversation so far, is value. I mean, let's face it, yes. with 40% of, of consumers reporting they're going to reduce their spending and unclear of the next uh, horizon of where income might come from, value is a very important element. And it's having people switch more and more to actually private label. And some of the non-branded goods are getting a bump, as we see it right now, based on this, this need for value. Do you think value chains will also um, collapse, right? As industries start saying, we're gonna go all vertical to take control of those situations. Like, is that popping up in some of your research as well, in terms of like brands wanting to make sure that they have, you know, the, the supply chain locked down for the things that they need, or that they actually start go they start producing things, kind of like the Costco example, like we want 4.99 Costco chicken, so we're gonna open a chicken fact, you know, chicken farm. Yeah. <laughs> I think what's for sure, Ray, on this is that value chains will be reshaped. I think they will be highly re-innovated or innovated on. And the, the winners of the profit pools as those innovations happen will shift. And so I think, unfortunately, what that means will there will be some companies inside value chains that will collapse. But I think that the value, as I'm looking across all of the sectors within the economy, there's some, there's some silver linings here. Right? This is forcing some of the, the things that we knew had to happen, happening faster. Is creating uh, innovation that is is immediate and rewriting the rules and the profit pools. Of value chains is part of what we're going to see over the next three to six months, and we're seeing executives spending a lot of time on that right now. So you know you, you, you're giving us guidance that speed to value is how you are relevant, and sustained relevance leads to trust. So brands that can quickly add value. Now you are a practice leader for chief revenue officers, chief marketing officers. But as we talk about speed to value, knowing there's now even stronger dependency on technology, of course, culture, talent, process, all of that, in my opinion, are even stronger critical success factors. But if you're not leading it to technology, you're unable to remove the friction and, and create that, uh, in, that convenience that's also safe and gives you access. Do you see CIOs uh, gaining prominence in terms of their role since businesses need, now need to think about becoming more technology companies that deliver goods and service? Or do you, do, you, do you rely on CMOs and CROs to really, as a team, determine how to best use technology to grow their businesses? For sure it's the latter, Bella. Yeah. I mean, this, this is an all-team, all-contact sport right now. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually some of the beauty of what we're seeing companies who I think will come out stronger doing, right? They're recognizing this isn't a single hero involved. This takes a multidisciplinary approach for sure. Uh, the CRO, the CMO, the CIO working together towards a common purpose. I will say it puts an extra premium on digital talent and digital natives. And so, right. you know, th that, that's always been the case, but the premium just went up 10x, right? Yeah. On, on folks who know how to navigate that world. Yeah. Uh, so, 
So, so that's it. And, you know, the advice you asked advice, I think one of the biggest advice is you've got to take this on. It's a team sport. And what I've seen some of the best companies do is come together, use this moment to actually act at a speed and create a muscle set that didn't really exist in the past. Mm-hmm. And so the question we're, we're starting to work with executives on is how do you maintain that muscle and make it sustainable? Actually, part of the hardest part of this period is everybody's been working you know, 18 hours a day on Zoom all day. All right, you know how it is. So, I used to be six six and handsome. Look at me now. <laughs> it's, it's <really> <laughs> I was never handsome. Sorry. He's always handsome. Hey, yo, Brian, you 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 you're a good point, right? I mean, people are coming together, right? And and some of that is really the networks that you have, the networks you built over time. And you know, you've got access to some of the smartest minds, some of the top CEOs. And you know, who are some of your mentors? Like, who are you turning to when you jump in and say, "Look, I had a problem no one's ever thought about before." Like, who's on top of your list? Well, you know, it's a great question, right? This might sound a little bit uh, not what you'd expect, but in some ways I take a lot of learning from where, where it all started. I grew up in rural Ohio. My, my, my mother was a musician. My father was an eye doctor. I had art and science in the household every day. All day. Oh, awesome. Now, awesome. now, what that meant? It was steam well, before steam was hot. <laughs> <laughs> that, that meant there was a lot of healthy tension all the time, but, but it taught me, it role modeled for me the importance of multidisciplinary thinking and how to make sure there's a diverse set of, of skill sets and people in the room. And, and so I would just say, as I think about this moment, it's more important than ever to make sure that the, the right elements of the orchestra are, are, are all playing the same song. And that's easier said than done. Good answer. You know, we call that digital artisans, bring the right brain and the left brain together. Uh, something very powerful. We are here with Brian Gregg, senior partner, McKinsey and Company. You can follow him on Twitter at BGREGG12, and uh, you can catch up with some very interesting things. He's a senior partner and the co-leader for North American Marketing and Sales Practice. And check out the blog. There's uh, awesome stuff on the McKinsey website. Yeah, so definitely. thank you so much for being Brian, on the show. Brian, crushed it. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks, awesome. awesome. Be well. Well Bye done. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah, stay safe and keep in touch. Yeah. So, they do. They do produce awesome amazing insights. research. They really do. I, 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 one of my favorite places to go uh, to learn about emerging trends. And our next guest is going to talk about perhaps the most important emerging trend, and that's customer experience. Ali Cudby, CEO of your iconic brand and author. Ali wrote the book on customer experience. Literally, uh, the author of the number one best-selling book, "Keep Your Customers." Is there a topic more important than that right now? Ali brings a proven methodology for successful customer loyalty and retention to clients around the globe. From Fortune 500 to pre-revenue startups, Ali has spent 20 years re- uh, re- refining her craft. Uh, Ali teaches entrepreneurship and innovation at Purdue University and works with clients worldwide to incorporate her innovative customer loyalty and retention strategies through her uh, company, your iconic brand. You can follow Ali on Twitter at A L I C U D B Y. Welcome, Ali, to Disrupt TV. Thanks. So glad to be here. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. We had a chance to catch up pre show, uh, have a conversation. You we were brought to us by our friend Karen, uh, also in Indy, and uh, have a conversation. And you mentioned something that was so important that that famous 80 20 rule, right? That 80 20 rule for you know sales. Is completely blown up, and I think it's really important to start there because I think people should understand what you mean by that, and and I think that's a a great prognosticator for the rest of the book and and what else people are going to discover. Yeah, great. So when I was writing Keep Your Customers, this fantastic research came out, and this idea of applying the rule of eighty twenty to sales has been around for a long time. I mean, there's there's books written about it, and the idea is that. of your revenue comes from the top 20% of your customers. And as it turns out, nobody had ever actually done the (laughs) academic research into this. There's no quantitative analysis on this? Right. Where's where's the McKinsey study? (laughs) Where's the McKinsey study? We'll bring Brian back in now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So so Dan McCartney um, out of... um, uh, did did this research with a few other professors and they actually dug into it. And what they found was that in fact, if you're looking at revenue, the top 20% of your customers deliver between like 66 and 74% of revenue. So, you know, it ain't shabby, right? You're still getting two thirds to three quarters of your revenue from that top 20%, but not quite 80. So that was really interesting. 
But then it gets really interesting because they went one step further and looked at net income as kind of because they were looking at a bunch of different industries and different sizes of companies. So they used net income as this sort of stand in for profitability. And what they found was the top 20 percent of customers were actually delivering between 105 and 113 percent of net income. What? Right. Oh, wow. <laughs> That is super it, interesting. It's mind boggling. And so what you realize once you get your head around that is, well, holy Moses, how many customers are being served unprofitably at, a, at an actual loss if the top 20% is delivering over 100% of net income? So, so the CACs are ridiculous <laughs> and then servicing really bad customers. I mean, how much more pain can you add to my, oh, I was kidding. Go right, ahead. Right. No, let's spend a lot of time, energy, and money servicing people that are actually losing money for the company. And that's what, that's what companies do over and over and over again, which is fascinating. Woohoo. Customer loyalty for the wrong right. customers. <laughs> so, so, uh, you know, I mean, as, as, um, former chief customer officer and CMO before I joined Salesforce. I mean, you know, uh, you always want to make sure the marriage experience is better than the courtship experience. Uh, so you want to have the same level of interest and, and value creation, you know, after you, 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 you gain uh, the trust and respect and business of your, of your clients. Uh, and you have an interesting way, interesting way of segmenting customers for long-term retention. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, What's a healthy model in terms of long-term retention and your segmentation strategy? Yeah. So what you want to start thinking about if this top 20% is delivering so much of your profitability is how can you really make sure that you know who they are and service mm -hmm. them appropriately? But what my research has found is that even within that top 20%, there are real differences. So there's the there's the what I call the lazy loyals, right? They're the people that they they keep buying from you and they're they're profitable. They stick around for a long time, but really only at their convenience. They're total convenience customers. And so the second they have a better offer, you know, they're going to be out of there. So they're great while they last, but you don't want to over rotate on that group and be thinking about them in terms of you know, marketing or even product development because they're only going to stick around for as long as it's good for them. Then there's that middle section, which are the limited loyals. And you know, they like you. It's sort of like um, going to a hotel where you have rewards points. Like you may not really care. Uh, you know, Marriott versus Hilton, but you're probably more loyal to one versus the other because you get points and you have status in one. And if they change their status structure or if you lose status, well, then you really don't care anymore. And so you have an opportunity to elevate them in terms of their level of loyalty. But for the most part, they're going to be with you um, and you have that opportunity, but they're not super bought into their relationship with you. So those are the limited loyals. And, and then you have the lucrative loyals. And these are the customers who genuinely feel connected. They enjoy being your customer. And those are the ones that you want to really know who they are and understand them so that you can create those marketing messages that are going to be extra resonant for that segment so that you can get more of them. And how do you how do you identify these three categories? Is it propensity to buy, deal size? How, they engage in your events, they speak for you, they're willing to connect with press and media and analysts. Like, what, what are, are they? Certain uh, you know markers that tells you this is a limited versus lucrative? Yeah. So there's three factors that you look at. One is financial contribution, and and I say financial contribution versus revenue because sometimes you can have a smaller customer who actually ends up being a more loyal long-term customer and worth more to your company in the long term. So you don't want to just look at revenue because then also you can end up looking at customers who seem great. You caught the whale, but you either end up overextending yourself to serve them and they demand so much that even though they're you know bringing in a lot of revenue, you end up actually serving them at a loss or you know, it's, it's not that great a deal for your company in the end. And I've seen that with a lot of my 
customers before they brought me on is that you know they'll end up doing too much to save a big revenue number when in fact it's not even that great a deal for the company. So financial contribution is the first one. Then you want to look at referral and you want to have a way to know who's referring to you because that is a real elevator of a a uh, company's financial contribution, right? If somebody is, if, if you're getting referrals from a customer, then they're worth more to you than somebody who's not referring. Right. So you want to be able to you track know, great, that. Those are great points, right? I mean, you're basically saying customers are trading uh, loyalty for value, loyalty for convenience, loyalty for status. And any one of these things that you shake up could actually change the way customers look at loyalty. Because if you mess up one of those equations um, around profitability, and why, why bother, right? You're, you're wasting your time. You should be chasing after more of those, uh, you know, those, I mean, the, the folks that love you, right? right. I mean, that, that's really what matters. And, and, and that's a very different game than a lot of people are playing. So when you think about that, like, how do you treat customers unequally then? Like, is this a, a calculation? Is there a status to get there? So. Yeah. So, um, so you actually do treat customers unequally. You know, you should know your VIPs and you should give them better treatment. You should give them more upgrades, but you got to know who they are in order to be able to do it. And so a lot of companies, look, they know what's going on at the SKU level, but they don't necessarily know what's going on at the customer level with that same amount of granularity. And so that's what you need to be able to do. And so I actually walk my clients through a, a calculation that takes into account. Ah, the, there is a formula. Yeah, there's a formula. <laughs> there's always a formula. There's always a formula. Um, and so it's the, the direct revenue and the indirect. So you are actually looking at what is their, their actual financial contribution and then looking at that referral and engagement, those other two pieces in order to capture the full picture of what a customer looks like. And, and I think it's really interesting in the first segment with Brian, it, that idea of relationships and loyalty didn't come up as an opportunity. And that's what I'm seeing is that the companies that are building loyalty are retaining their customers better, but so few companies do. You know, like you said, it, they do a great job getting you in the door, but then once you've signed up, then that sort of experience falls by the wayside a lot of the time. That's a great point that don't view this as a threat vector, view it as an opportunity because people are, uh, again, with the barriers that have been introduced since the pandemic with safety and accessibility on top of relevance means that there's an opportunity for you to really double down on, on uh, creating a lower relationship. But I, hope, but I think that the measurement of loyalty, like when we talk about net promoter score as an example, for years I've been thinking about, the question is intent for advocacy. Would you recommend my company based on quality of product or service? And we're smart enough and we have enough technology to shift that question from intent for advocacy to actual advocacy, where the question should be, have you recommended my company to whom and did it result in incremental revenue? So should, you know, should, do companies need to graduate from, you know, you know, the annual surveys or biannual versus, for example, capturing social networking and messaging unstructured data that speaks to sentiment and tone of your customers and prospects to understand signals for advocacy where you can potentially engage in a meaningful way and really use that word of mouth uh, p power of marketing to, to expand your your, uh, your 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 brand affinity. What are your thoughts about the maturity level of companies using the right set of algorithms and metrics to really understand the power of engagement and advocacy? I would say that most still don't, and that this is an early stage opportunity for companies to dig in and make a difference. The thing about Net Promoter Score that's so interesting to me is everybody uses it. And yet it doesn't differentiate at all between the value of the customer to you. You, know, you capture the data, you treat everybody the same. And if you, and I see a lot of companies, um, they'll get negative feedback, they'll get a, ba a bad net promoter score. Well, if that's from somebody or even from a, from a cohort of customers that aren't serving your needs as a company, then I see so many times when people say, oh my God, we're getting negative scores. We got to do something about that. Instead of questioning, you know, is this a group of customers that you want to do something for? And it takes a lot of maturity as a company to say, these are customers that we're okay of, that it, we're okay to let them go. We're okay to, to serve yeah. well 
you know, the, the idea isn't that some customers get a so bad hard. experience. It sounds so hard. We're going to fire a customer. No, no, but, but, but Ray, 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 if you remember, we had Jason Lumpkin, who's a very successful VC, and he said his advice to startup founders was find the advocates and double down on them. The detractors, he all pretty much said forget about them. <laughs> you know, just just put your energy on your 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 promoters and 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 uh, and maybe maybe some energy for the folks in the middle that could quickly become advocates. So and he's a super successful VC. So anyway. Anyway, it is hard to do. It is hard to do. It's absolutely hard to do. And and I don't think it's as much about, you know, I don't know that it's as much about fire them. Um, and it depends on the company and the model, right? It depends on how right. many customers you're actually serving. Right. Right. But certainly in terms of not getting out of out of whack on those customers that aren't serving your custom your company and making sure that you're really focusing your energy and your effort on those customers that move the needle for you. And Anytime you get confused, you just go back to that 105 to 113% of your profitability, you know, net income, whatever, is being driven by that top 10% and bring things into focus. That should be on a poster hanging on a wall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Every time you walk into the, well, assuming we go back into offices, every time you walk into the office, you got to, you know, kiss it. <laughs> So we've got a way to segment which ones are our best customers. And now you're doubling down, trying to figure out how to actually make them happy. Um, you know, and what's say, are you, would you run out of those great customers or how do you start cultivating them? Is there a way to activate them? Is like a, a movement that you activate to get them even more excited behind it? You know, what I find is that the more companies know who those great customers are, the more they can cultivate more great customers. And with that clarity of messaging and really knowing who they are, who those customers are, they can find more and more and more. I have yet to see a company that runs out. And then a lot of the work that gets done is actually the work of making sure that the company is aligned so that they're delivering that experience consistency and clear consistently and clearly. And so you know, that sort of becomes this virtuous cycle of, of customer generation and customer loyalty generation. This is my uh, last question. You know, uh, the seismic event that's impacted all of us since uh, beginning of the year um, and as you're advising CEOs and big companies, startups, have you changed the order of in, in terms of what you're advising them based on the pandemic? Are there certain initiatives that have risen to the top, or 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 is you know is your thesis and formula really independent of you know going from centralized to distributed digital world or, and types of products and services, or the new technologies that are emerging like contactless payments and e-commerce and augmented virtual reality and so on, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, what has changed in terms of how you guide business leaders as a result of the pandemic? So I would say that a lot of companies, they really do want to focus on you know, new customer acquisition. And so you know, that's where their energy lies a lot of the time. And now realizing that it's so much harder to get the attention of a potential new customer, there are a lot of companies that are more open to this conversation about retention than, you know, than sometimes they are. And so you can sort of start to share with them. And, and one of the things that I'm starting to see is that they're more focused on, you know, how do you get that alignment inside your organization so that you can serve customers at the higher level? And so I would say that the thing that I'm seeing working even more effectively right now is getting CEOs to buy into the importance of internal alignment in order to get those external results. Absolutely. Is this a myth, by the way, that the cost of a new customer is 10x versus keeping one? I, I heard that for many years. Is that true? Or, or is that another We're doing myth? myth busting today here on Disrupt TV? Yeah, exactly. Um, there, there are so there's so many um, stat statistics out there. A lot of them, you know, weirdly fall into that 80-20 bucket. Um, it, you know, it, it's interesting because if this whole 80-20 rule uh, in, in terms of sales is blown up, then how many of these others are blown up? <laughs> I use a lot of them, too. Um, so we just need we need McKinsey to get back in here and do a little bit more research, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's awesome. Hey, so that. you 
got into this work from a very non-traditional path. Yeah. Uh, and so when we don't hear often, I was hunting for your books on Amazon and you know, there's some other interesting stuff. So share with us how you got here and uh, you know, where some of these insights have come from. Sure. So I started my career in strategic marketing and did a lot of this work in corporate America. And then I took a very unique left turn and ended up becoming one of the world's foremost experts on the art and science of how a bra should fit a woman's body. And I run a bra fit training and certification program for lingerie professionals, um, which is makes me super popular at cocktail parties when we have them. And um, because oh, yeah, that, that's not the standard answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what ended up happening was my clients would be really great at bra fitting. And then I would say to them, you know, they, they'd say, oh my gosh, Allie, my customers are crying tears of joy in the fitting room. They are so thrilled with the fittings that they're getting. And I would say, that's great. Now, what are you going to do to make sure that you keep these customers for the long term? And they never had a plan. And it was fascinating the extent to which they never had a plan. They just thought that if they gave customers a good in-store experience, that that would naturally lead to good long-term customer revenue. And it doesn't work that way. You have to remind customers that they've had a good experience. You have to do that work to cultivate the relationship. And so that's sort of where all of this came together and being an expert on bra fitting also became this, this uh, company here. Awesome, awesome. What a this is tremendous. Story. Fascinating insights, breaking sales myths, trying to figure out how to keep your customers looking at loyalty different and segmentation. You can follow Ali Cudby, CEO of your iconic brand and author of Keep Your Customers. So check it out on Amazon. Definitely out there. Definitely a book to read. And thank you so much for calling in today and being Thank you, Ali. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. You're terrific. Wow, that was awesome. So important. I mean, again, marriage experience better than courtship. That's what we got to do. And um, we have now our final guest, who at one point was a world-leading authority on pajamas, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. We have Larry <laughs> Dignett, editor-in-chief of ZDNet, uh, and editorial director of ZDNet's sister site, Tech Republic. Uh, uh, he was most recently executive editor of news and blogs at ZDNet, my favorite uh, blogging site in the world. Uh, Larry's covered technology since 1995. He's one of our favorite guests. You can follow, He's a must-follow on Twitter because every day he's posting incredible articles about transformation and the next normal. You can follow Larry on Twitter at L-D-I-G-N-A-N. Welcome back, Larry, to Disrupt TV. Good to be here. Did we plan on all this customer centricity kind of thing? Like, this is all interconnected. It's very... <laughs> we started with the importance of omnichannel. We're going to go right to that question it's, next, I believe. Yeah, it was one from McKinley oh, to, 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 customers to <laughs> me ranting about retail. It's like pretty wacky. We love when you rant about retail, right? Let's go, let's go there, right? I mean, the post-pandemic winners, Target, Walmart, Home Depot, and Lowe's. I mean, these are some crazy numbers. Where it's coming from? Like, tell us a little bit. What's one of the insights here? So, yeah, so... And, and I'm glad you have power, given I heard about the power outage. Well, yeah, power well. is good, too. Um, so all those big retailers reported earnings basically in the last two days or so. Um, and it was kind of fascinating listening to the conference calls and checking out the transcripts because there, there were like certain unique threads. Now, now let's get real. Uh, all those companies, Walmart, Target, Home Depot and Lowe's all did well, partially because they were deemed essential. Right. So other retailers weren't essential and some of those are now dead. Um, so they took that ball, which was a nice ball to be handed to them. And really just those digital bets just really paid off, whether it's curbside pickup, you know, buy online, pick up in store, you know, Target and Walmart were kind of ahead of the curve. Um, Home Depot was, you know, different animal and they had their one Home Depot sort of mission, which, you know, a lot of it revolved around supply chain and stuff like that. And then Lowe's is sort of like a newcomer. Um, if you followed the Home Depot Lowe's battle forever, Basically, the way it works is Home Depot has a store here. Lowe's goes, hmm, here's a mile and a half away. I'm putting a store here. And 
they basically the classic get, McDonald's Burger King model. Hey, why not? Pretty much. And, and they cultivate different, you know, like I'll go to Lowe's when I don't know what I'm doing and I'll go to Home Depot when I know what I'm doing, um, which means I'm usually at Lowe's most of the time. Um, I've just I've just worked my way up to unhandy. Um, so but but they've they've all taken, you know, sort of that digital model and, and run with it. So, you know, it's contact payment. It's contactless payments. It's things like, uh, you know, definitely the the shop online pickup in store has turned out to be huge. And, you know, just everything from curbside pickup where, you know, it's sort of and it works out great for the retailer, too, because they don't have to deal with shipping. Right. So that, that's, that's a good point, too. And, and back to Brian's point. Back, I mean, people aren't even returning too because once you get it, it's like, it's like there's like only one of these left, and everyone's like, "Fine, I'll take it." I mean, right, and, yeah. and it's you know, and then you toss in a little human touch, like a human actually hands you the bag of curbside pickup. Maybe that matters. Um, and, but just there's there's sort there's sort there's basically an omni-channel kind of playbook emerging, which is you know, buy online, pick up in store, delivery services. Although you know, if I'm these retailers, I have delivery services, but I'd prefer you come pick it up as opposed to deliver it. Um, and just the whole digital experience flow between, you know, what, what's the app, the website to, you know, actually going in the store. And it's, it's kind of fascinating to watch. And, you know, you're, you're seeing this, like I interviewed the Joanne Fabric CIO earlier this week too for video. And, and they're doing, you know, the, basically the same sort of model. Um, but, you know, they're all adding their own unique spins to it. And for Joanne Fabric, it was all about, you know, they were a big PPE play because they sell a bunch of fabric and, you know, they're, they're crafts people, or I guess you call them people to do crafts for, you know, it's a species I don't understand, but, um, you know, they, they made a bunch of masks. They did a lot of PPE and, you know, they wound up using their stores as fulfillment centers in a lot of ways. And it should be like Joanne Fabrics to Etsy value chain delivery, you know, right <laughs> on a subscription you, basis. Yeah. So you see this happening at, at different retailers. But, you know, the big the big four were the ones I mentioned that reported earnings. And, you know, I think Walmart was the laggard. I mean, these guys were posting like 25 percent same store growth. And it was insane. Like you're just watching it. You're like, wow. So you really have this barbell of, you know, all the other retailers that are basically struggling to even hang on. And then you got these just absolute powerhouses that, you know, so so I guess the takeaway here is that, you know, they kind of are owning the customer through multiple channels. And, you know, they have those people that will give them good word of mouth and they're repeat customers. So I, I don't know if that's 80-20. I mean, but my guess is like <laughs> I, I will walk in a Target. Um, I try to avoid Walmart. I will order online from Walmart. Um, you know, it's just sort of, but they're acquiring new customers too through these channels, and and then how they how they nurture them through the pipeline is going to be fascinating to watch. And like was said earlier, I think some of these things are just going to stick, like especially buy online, pick up in store, curbside pickup. I think is going to last. Um, you know, I think what we're all coming around to realizing is you're going to have a generation that just doesn't want to deal with people. Um, <laughs> Where's that robot? The two interesting points in your latest article about this one was the, that one experience multi-channel and you know it was uh, I don't know which one of the store executives but they said the reason uh, being good at delivering across multiple channel matters is because the customer is in charge so you have to deliver a, a good experience across multiple channels and the other one was supply chain improvements like Home Depot plan to hire a thousand IT professionals to build that one Home Depot strategy. So there's, they're really doubling down on technology to introduce convenience and you know build that uh, brand loyalty as, as our last guest talked about. Yeah, and, and for somebody like Home Depot, it really is all about supply chain, right? They are shipping big things. Um, they're delivering big stuff. And what's interesting there is, you know, last quarter and the second quarter on the earnings call, the CEO was just talking about how they flipped uh, you know, like one of their middle distribution centers into being like a core one. And then they'll flip it back once the demand surge is over. So even the distribution, like what was a, you know, they basically would ladder these distribution centers. Even how they're doing that's changing based on the surge. The, the other interesting point from all that is the Black Friday and, you know, the holiday shopping season 
it is all being modeled and planned off what happened in April and May. Right. Because that was the, the peak the, surge. Right. So, Those peaks are crazy. Try yeah. getting a refrigerator. No one yeah. can get a refrigerator if right. your refrigerator dies. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I know. That. Yeah. I've had two instances of, of friends and family saying we can't get a fridge. <laughs> right. And that's, you know, and that, that's part of a broader theme where e-commerce is really figuring out the big stuff. So, you know, look at Wayfair, absolutely killing it on furniture delivery. There's a bunch of trends that add to that, but, you know, they get you the goods. Uh, Carvana, another one. Yeah. Zillow, right? Yeah. Zillow buying houses and basically flipping you or flipping them to you. Um, you know, it's all data driven, but, you know, e-commerce is getting into the bigger things where before it was, you know, you remember those debates we had, like, would people buy shoes online? <laughs> like now you're buying couches online, right? So, yeah. you know, and a car, yeah. and a car. Well, you can even so test drive you, the puppy. You can place, you can place the couch. You can place the couch in your living room, exact right size. You know, I mean, and the, the use of, uh, you know, use of augmented reality with the furniture stores is, is uh, uh, and even, even, even the videos of homes now, you know, realtors are giving you, uh, you know, uh, 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 inside the house and neighborhood experience. So it's more than just, Beautiful photos. You can actually see this. One gotcha with the furniture stuff is if you have to return it, that hurts. Yeah. It's expensive. It's not. It's not an easy return charge there. So that's the other thing. You know, it's not free returns. So right. <laughs> so Larry, one industry that maybe not adapting as quickly to retail is education. What's going, on? What's going on in the education sector? Uh, in the last two weeks... You wrote about that as well, by the way. Yeah, the last two, three weeks, I've probably spent 12 hours on school board meetings locally. It's on YouTube, just watching it, um, slash screaming at the TV or whatever. Um, so there's there's two buckets here. One One's the K through 12 which is frankly an absolute struggle, right? They, they don't have the money to do this. They don't have the people. They play around with hybrid versus virtual. Um, and, you know, some of them are trying the hybrid model, which is sort of a split between virtual and in-person. Like you'd be in person, say, Monday, Wednesday, and online the most, the rest. Um, but it is the biggest training exercise ever. Right. Because I mean, I'm an adjunct. Right. So we had to move we had to move like content to, you know, digital, which I, I was probably 80 percent digital anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you had to move it over. Right. Exams, Proctorio, which is this thing that kind of watches your webcam to see if you're cheating or not, which is kind of fascinating in itself. Um, <laughs> but there's a real, you know, just getting Chromebooks to kids like oh, that was there's so hard, a serious yeah. supply issue right now. Um, you're, you got to train teachers on Canvas, which I, I, you know, for, I don't know if you guys use Canvas or not, but it's basically like the Epic or SAP of education. It, yep. it works, but you don't like it. it it's kind of cool. You don't like it. Um, <laughs> so, that. so you, you, yeah, you, wrote, you wrote that 76% of respondents to a survey, parents are making purchases specifically related to online education. So you're seeing shortages, you're seeing uncertain terms of what equipment do they need to replicate the classroom at home. It's just parents are struggling, right? I mean, it's, it's, well, it's, it's, it's a huge economic issue, right? Because yeah. you, you know, you, you were planning on your kids to go to school so you could work and just, just retrofitting your house. Like say you have two kids and they're both in remote school and you're doing remote work. That's a lot of zooms on the Wi-Fi, right? right? So it would break. You really don't you really have the Wi-Fi speed they promised you? And no, I was kidding. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Um, depends on where you are. I, I mean, I have colleagues that have Spectrum and, and they're just ready to just jump like it's bad. Um, no, which I, is the former cable vision, I think. But but yeah, some 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 providers are better than others. But, you know, just figuring out your Wi-Fi network. It's it's just a real strain right now. And education's kind of being reinvented as we go. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what it's going to look like. My high school just said um, they're not going back till they're not trying a hybrid plan till like January 29th, which it's don't ask me what's going to happen January 29th. So strictly online. Yeah. Wow. The, the New York schools are opening, which is interesting. So right, it's well, be they're going to watch all these. They're going to try, right? 
Um, yeah. I, I think they all try. And then, you know, but my part where I live, it's kind of like the numbers are pretty good. So my, my thing is try now because it ain't going to work later. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you don't want to be the next UNC or you, you, need, you need to be on their advisory committee for, for well, this. I mean, so. I mean, honestly, you mean to tell me you think flu season and COVID season at the same time is going to be a good thing, right? I thought we eliminated the flu with COVID. No, it's oh, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. He says, uh, you know, but, but hey, yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's a real challenge. And then universities, they're just as challenged. Um, the university challenge is really about financials. Where K through 12, I think it's more about logistics, funding. Um, let's face it, most universities, their core competency is building buildings after founders um, or funders. <laughs> and sports or, teams and sports management. Sports right, and alumni. And sports management and if you go to a big school. But, so. you know, so they've kind of gotten away from that core. You know, they're basically real estate investment trust, right? Here's a building. We collect rent. We charge you tuition for this experience. And, you know, then there's a huge pushback. Like, you're just not going to want to be online. So I, I think higher ed is going to be totally disaggregated. So it's going to be platforms like Chegg, Coursera. It's I'm not sure how it's Google, shaking out. Google is getting into the space, apparently. To, right. And I, I think you're going to mix and match your degrees. Like, I, wow. I think it's a hard. I mean, I think community colleges are going to boom. Um, because, you know, people are going to really start looking at the ROI here. And it's hard to justify if it's just all online. Right. Well, right. we're going to we're going to do um, rapid fire speed you know, answers. We got a couple more things. Facebook portal. What's going on there? I can't believe I'm saying this, but <laughs> I actually think Facebook portal might be an addition to the home office. Wow. wow. I can't, I've panned that thing. I, I, I don't even like Facebook. I <laughs> I mean, I get I get workplace by Facebook. I, I get it. I just don't. It drives me nuts. Um, but having a thing where you can do a video cam conference and the, you know, camera follows you around. And, you know, I don't know about you. I'm tired of sitting down doing Zooms. I'd rather walk around the room. Yeah. And, Zoom. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the thing they announced this week with the native integration with the, you know, WebEx and Zoom and all those guys. I think it's going to become a home office purchase and, and they're not expensive. So I think I'm actually going to have to give it a whirl. It'll be my yes, yes, yesterday alone. I was on Microsoft Teams, Zoom, Google Hangout and on 24 platform in one day. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, where's the share button? They're, they're all different. They're all, you know. Uh, and, that's, <laughs> and by the way, that's Google Meet. And you were probably on it by accident because they've embedded that every place they can on G Suite. Like, you know, I can't believe Slack is like doing teams. Like the bundling here is really Meet and G Suite. You yeah, cannot, yeah, avoid, you cannot avoid Google Meet and G Suite anymore. No. It, All right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We're running out of time, but why the would Larry want TikTok from Oracle? What's going on there? I, I mean, that's the last question. I, I know Larry's Trump's boy. I get it, but it's just I. I hope it happens, right? I mean, I call Microsoft and TikTok. Lots of ZDN articles about that. To see Larry Ellison doing a TikTok or even pretending he knows what the hell TikTok is is worth its weight in gold. So, please, Larry, buy TikTok. I just want to see this unfold. Um, now, all that said, watch it become watch it become like fifty percent of Oracle's valuation. Um, it'll run on Oracle Cloud, right? You can I can almost see OCI it. next gen two next gen two cloud exactly. infrastructure. It's it's all optimized for the database. It's all autonomous. What's not to love? Um, you'll live forever on TikTok. I mean, Larry's living forever anyway. So it's just I just want to see it happen. I mean, it's it's totally nuts, but maybe maybe it'll happen. I don't know. We are live with Larry Ding, editor-in-chief at ZDNet, one of the top minds in the business. You can follow him at L-D-I-G-N-A-N. Never a dull moment, always insightful, and thank you so much. Why do the conversations with Larry seem like one minute? Like, we could spend an hour talking to you. Yeah. Well, I got, I got to go do a TikTok now, so. <laughs> All right. Maybe I'll buy it. Thank you, thank you so much. He's my favorite guest. He's one of my favorite, literally maybe my favorite guest. Uh, 
All right. Uh, God, that hour went by literally in five minutes. Three exceptional guests. Uh, Brian, Allie, Larry, you were all awesome. Okay, episode. this was episode 203. We've interviewed two, uh, 622 guests uh, in, 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 on, on Disrupt. Next week is, who's counting? Next week is episode 204. We have Sandeep Dalani, Chief Digital Officer at Mars. We have Sarah Alk, partner at Bain Company and co-author of Doing Agile Right. And we have, again, First Ballot Hall of Fame, absolutely one of my favorite guests, John Reed, co-founder of Giginomica. So episode 204 is going to be as amazing as any episode we've had this year. Uh, Ray, closing remarks. I can't believe the summer is over. Where did it go? I mean, this is one of the uh, weirdest years ever. This shared reality experience is, uh, you know, I, I hope people are recovering. I really hope people are feeling better. You know, it's, it's just the chaos doesn't end. Every hundred years thing has happened. Like we've got wildfires going on now. Like I'm like, stop, there's no earthquakes. I'm, I'm fine. Like, you know, we can we stop have, now and we'll be okay. <laughs> we got 10,000 10, lightning strikes in California in the last three days. It uh, was so beautiful. And then there's like, oh crap, it's yeah. dry out here. <laughs> yeah, 300 somewhat wildfires, but yeah, it's beautiful. Um, so, yeah, uh, hey. so next week is our last episode of August. You're right. You're right. August just, I mean, this this whole year is, yeah, it's, it's, uh, this is it. This is it. Well, hey, everybody, thank you for listening. This is Disrupt TV and in you know, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, every Friday where it's possible, you'll catch Vala and myself giving out insight, advice, but more importantly, hearing from our guests who really know what they're doing, uh, and more importantly, sharing their thoughts, their experiences, and of course, sharing it with you. Thanks a lot, everyone, for being on the show. See you next week.